Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me on the show again today. So far in this series, our focus has been on the, the higher or if you like the macro level of the overall property cycle as you may have gathered over the last few weeks. Now today we start to move a little bit closer to home and indeed look at our own personal property cycle if you like. So it's not an individual property here, it's, um, it's a collection in, in, in our own portfolio. So we're going to start to look at um, how the journey unfolds and changes over time with regard to our own property portfolio. And I'm joined on today's show by David Clouter, who started investing back in 1982. And uh, he's seen a few property cycles and several property strategies over those decades in business as well. In fact, I think he may have even created or invented some of the strategies as you'll hear from our interview. So who better to listen to and observe in the context of developing our own property portfolios than I wonder. Now I'm going to share with you the interview with David as a precursor to a wider discussion on the property portfolio cycle subject and how this can develop over time in another episode. So let's hear my interview with David Clouter right now in Property Chatter. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Hi, I'm very pleased to have with me David Clouter, who's uh, kindly ag- uh, agreed to join me on the show today. And uh, David, first of all, welcome. How are you? Thanks. Uh, hello, Richard. Thanks for having me on today. No, you, you're very welcome. I know we've had a few uh, chats and engagements ver- via various means, so it's uh, you know <laughs> I'm glad we got it together. Thanks again. I really appreciate that. But um, David, as you know, I mentioned to you that we we try and have what we call subject matter experts, um, and I, I'm very pleased that you could agree to join us today. But to help in that regard, it'd be useful if you wouldn't mind sharing, particularly with the listeners, just a little bit about yourself, and obviously in particular about property investing, and uh, a little bit about your story, just to set the scene a little, if you don't mind. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, uh, me, I'm just a humble, um, ac- well, they call an accidental landlord. Um, but the thing is, it started quite a long time ago. It was, uh, the year was 1982, and I just started a new job in London, uh, and I, I was renting a flat, and the people in the flat upstairs used to party until 4 a.m., oh, and right. I used to have to get up at 7 o'clock to go to work. Simple as that. So when they moved out, I gave my uh, landlord a ring. He, he, he was living in Spain at the time in a, in, in a town called Mojaca. So he was quite pleased when I proposed to him that I would find the next tenants, really, just to get a good night's sleep. Um, so, so that was how it all began for me. And uh, I ended up doing what I believe today is called rent to rent, but we called it subletting. Uh, and uh, the, the, the rent that I was getting from the flat that was immediately above me, which, which I was managing, uh, made a very significant contribution towards my living expenses. Uh, in the flat below, uh, and, uh, so, so that was my first step in the journey, and I was uh, 23 years old then. Wow. Okay. So, and I guess you've uh, you've you obviously seen quite a lot over over those years, several def- decades now. 
Well, as, as things w worked out, I've had tenants uh, continuously without a break since then, so I guess I must have been doing uh, something right. Uh, a couple of years after that, uh, a friend told me, or a lot, there was a lot of peer pressure, you really must get on the uh, property ladder. So I bought a little flat in uh, Finsbury Park, actually, in North London, and um, the, the whole thing was going through. Because I was a newbie, I didn't know how long it took to buy a flat, the guy I was... Uh, buying from was, was, was an expat working abroad, so he was in no hurry to, to, to move this forward. So it took about six months to buy this flat, mm -hmm. during which time I was, re I was reflecting on the whole process. Uh, and uh, this flat that I was buying was about half the size uh, of, of the one that I was living in, almost for free with rent to rent. Um, the, the, the kitchen was in the living room, so uh, it was kind of a ghastly place, really. And, and about two weeks uh, before I was due to move in, after exchange of contracts, I rang up my bank and I said, help, what can I do? I hate the place. And they said, um, we'll give you permission, uh, what's it called, permission to let. And uh, so I paid them a small fee and put tenants in there as well. So before long, I had my second tenanted property. And uh, the um, and I rapidly discovered that the, the, the rents that, that I was being paid were covering the, the, the cost of ownership. Uh, and over time, that one started appreciating. So I have to pause you there because it can't go without saying an observation, really. That so let me just understand. In the in the early eighties, you were effectively applying rent to rent and buy to let before the existence of formal buy to let mortgages and uh, certainly the the marketing hype around rent to rent. That's correct. Yes, I was some um, uh, somewhere ahead of the crowd there, I guess. But uh, it's it's just sort of uh, the thing that landed into my lap as as, as things worked out. And I guess if we fast forward, um, you know, just give us an indication of really the, the you know, just potted view, really, of uh, experience and scale that you might have seen as an investor over those over the subsequent years. Absolutely. I scaled up quite a lot in London, obviously, although it took me a while. But but, but right all through the 1990s, uh, property prices were completely flat in London. Uh, and I, I used that opportunity to buy HMOs, to buy one or two uh, single lets, although that's never been my preferred thing, and um, small multi-lets and, and what today would be called HMOs. So I was doing them long before that definition came out as well. Uh, and uh, all that continued, sort of chugged along for about 20 years. And then I decided to relocate. Um, and so I moved the whole portfolio, uh, lock, stock and barrel up to Cambridge where I am now because I didn't want to give up too much of what I had. I didn't want to sort of uh, have half as much property or half as much equity when I arrived as when I left. I spent some years flipping, uh, which, 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 which um, was, was another strategy that I got into and that uh, paid a lot of the tax uh, to, to cover my move. Uh, and, um, and so I find myself up here in Cambridge today at a different stage in my property journey with a totally different type of uh, uh, property. Yeah, I think this is, is wonderful uh, to hear you sort of elaborate on that. And I know we talked a little bit before we, we got into recording about, um, you know, our lifestyle and this sort of thing. We'll come back to that. But just to sort of set the scene a little bit, we're in the middle of a, the, in, on my series that are about property cycles. And uh, we've got the we covered the overall property cycle a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to look at individual property cycles, you know, in, in terms of buying a single unit in the coming weeks. But right now, our focus is on, if you like, a, prop, a property portfolio. So it's, you know, it's a bit like your journey from 1982 to today. And uh, that, that's the context of what I wanted to talk to you about. And if I, if we can just dive into that a little bit, what how do you see a portfolio cycle Generally speaking, um, you well, see clear stages, for example. 
it, it does. I think that, that there's always a balance uh, to, to be drawn, isn't there, between um, risk and reward, and, and in property just as much as everybody, as, as any, any other field, uh, that risk in property com probably comes uh, when we look at gearing. Um, interestingly enough, uh, coming back to that first flat that I ever lived uh, in, it had previously been owned by a, a sort of minor property magnate. There were two brothers uh, who, um, who, who were opticians, and, and they started uh, investing spare money, spare cash from the business into buying property at a time when property was quite cheap because if you think back in those days, uh, I think now I believe it takes about eight and a half years of the average salary to buy a property. In those days, uh, it was about two or three months worth of salary would, would, would buy your property and they built up an enormous uh, portfolio across uh, North London by what what is called today, I believe, snowballing. I think um, there are some footballers. Doesn't Robbie Fowler do that as well? He sort of picks up houses for cash from time to time. And obviously, as that sort of portfolio grows, the actual cash flow from the business uh, compounds and allows you to buy more and more property so that you're not geared and you're not borrowing at all. So there is, there are other ways. There's not just the one way to do it. Yeah. So, um, you know, basically, this from, from nothing, to having a, a vast empire, <laughs> there'll be key stages you can you can go through. But equally, there are different approaches you can take to do that. I guess is, is the takeaway there. Yes, that, 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 that's absolutely what I'm saying. Uh, that the um, although sort of the overall game plan might be the same, the detail and, and, and particularly the, the, the way of getting started can vary considerably. And and uh, uh, now, for example, one of the things that I, I stress to people sort of starting out. Uh, a lot of people tell you that uh, you can start in property and after a couple of weeks or months or whatever, give up your day job. And, and, and that is certainly something that I would never, ever ad advocate because uh, one of the key principles that I work to is that uh, the money, uh, i.e. the rent or the capital appreciation or whatever it is, the money belongs to the property. And you should be kind of self-sustaining uh, in the background from, from, from some other kind of activity. That's interesting as well. I, I share that point of view. And um, is, but is there a point in time where that can cross over and change? I guess you know in the early stages. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. There's there's a risk, I guess, in the early stages that if you you jump jump ship and try and live off the proceeds of the portfolio, that um, you're in a vulnerable position. But I guess at some point in time, there's a you know there's a good argument that that uh, it can sustain itself and you, in fact. Oh, I think everybody um, makes a transition at some point, but I think that the, the, the danger is in uh, in, in making it uh, too soon. I had a fellow who who came up to uh, have a coffee with me in in Cambridge recently, and he'd been on some kind of course. As a result of which, he gave up his um, his job immediately. He hadn't really secured much at all, but on on the basis of him sort of scrabbling about a bit, his partner was about to give up her job as well. I said, "For goodness' sake, stop, stop!" Because um, one of the first things that that people forget is that. As soon as they give up the day job, not only are they uh, very severely uh, impacting the, the ability of their portfolio to compound, but at the same time, uh, if they're doing this through borrowing, and I think most of us have to uh, nowadays to, to, to get things started, uh, suddenly uh, two-thirds of the, the best products and all the best rates are suddenly no longer available to you. Yeah, I totally agree. And what people often forget about is that um, in addition to funding our living costs and our lifestyle, which is why we would maybe take our income from a portfolio as opposed to, let's say, a job, the portfolio itself needs looking after. It needs further investment. It needs contingencies for repairs and uh, upgrades. Um, it needs deposits for other properties. So 
you know, people perhaps lose sight of that. You say, oh, I need to replace X thousand pounds a month as an income. And then they forget the other side of the equation. Um, you know, and you need to fill the hopper, don't you, constantly? Absolutely so. And another thing that people forget is that um, on the whole, I think probably for almost everybody, while you're working in your nine to five or whatever, you're not actually spending money on yourself during that period. But once you've... Um, developed a sort of independent income stream and, and, and your financial freedom and so forth, you might want to play golf at three o'clock in the afternoon. So your ex expenditure on yourself might actually go up as well. So um, I mean, I, I um, started, as I said, in 1982. I gave up my day job in 1995. So that was, what, 12, 13 years. Mm -hmm. Even then, I think maybe I rushed it a bit because I, my portfolio would certainly be much bigger today if I'd stayed on just three or four more years and got a few more mortgages and a few more properties. Yeah, I think it's really it's ironic because literally this morning I, I share a quote on a Monday. I call it uh, Motivation Monday. And today mm -hmm. I, I literally shared a quote from Warren Buffett, who was talking about having a he, he talked about having an additional income stream or income source. And, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they, f they just they don't look at the merits of doing that. And I elaborated there may be several reasons why that's a good idea to have several sources of income. Most people concentrate, uh, whether it's in a business or a job, most pro probably. And so uh, the idea is to develop alternative income streams. It's very rare, though, that you can develop that alternative income stream sufficiently to replace the job and your lifestyle expenses. And as you say, they may, they may increase. Um, so it could take some time. To your point, you uh, yes, that's true. Yeah, yes, yeah, sorry, that's true. And, and um, pe people do sort of so, some people get carried away a bit in all the sort of euphoria of it all. And certainly, I mean, my mentor and, and, and he was sort of around working in the sort of 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, and and me personally, we, we've seen people who who build their portfolios too quickly, but possibly acting on on bad advice. And then I mean, there were certainly a lot of people kind of swaggering around in 2006, saying, "Hey, look at me! I've got 20, 20 houses. I built them all in a, a year." And and then you know what what happened was that, that sort of four or five years later, the, the, these fellows had had lost a lot and and, and weren't bragging anymore because uh, they hadn't understood that with the sort of upside uh, that there there is the downside. There are are the risks and you, you have to plan for both. Let's, let's just uh, dive into that a little bit because people can get a bit carried away and then go, okay, I've now generated an income from this portfolio, whether it's, you know, for whatever means, let's say. But um, yes. how can it disappear? What are the sort of things that could happen? You've obviously seen a few cycles, a couple of cycles anyway. Indeed. So, Indeed. Um, well, uh, interesting enough, let's come back to the, the, the start of my journey. Uh, and um, so I bought this, uh, this this flat that was in 1986, and it cost me uh, 28,000 pounds. And um, at the time, the, the government were fiddling with things that were to do with um, the tax relief, as, as governments uh, are wont to do. And there was a thing called MIRAS, Mortgage Interest Relief at Source, which applied to um, two individuals could could buy a house together, not not necessarily a, a couple. Or related or anything, and, and, and both of them will get tax relief. And it was announced uh, with a year's prior warning that this uh, that this tax perk, or if, if that's what you want to call it, would be abolished uh, from I think it was the summer of uh, 1989. But you know, somebody can correct me if I've got the dates wrong. Um, and there was a frantic scrabble to, uh, to to buy property, not to miss out on this deadline. So the flat that I'd played 28 for in 1986, I was actually offered in the spring of, uh, of 1989, I was offered £82,000 for this flat, a staggering increase in value. Mm -hmm. And as a total newbie, I 
thought, oh, well, that's what property always does. It goes up in price, I'll keep it. Uh, once this um, government deadline had passed and the, the, the mortgage relief was no longer available to new buyers, everybody's interest in buying a house totally collapsed. Uh, and uh, suddenly I saw um, about £30,000 uh, wiped off the value of my new purchase. Uh, it, and, and I was very sort of disheartened by this and, and, and I thought, what on earth should I do? And I, I was about to follow the crowd. So I found a chap at work who, who uh, was kind of prepared to buy this flat for me for a mere £50,000, that's, that's £30,000 less than I had been offered in cash some months earlier and we were proceeding but he was one of these guys who would ask a lot of questions like how many levers did you say is on the front door lock and uh, do all the windows open outwards and all this kind of stuff so after a few months of this it was cash flowing positive I had doubled my money anyway so I thought you know what I'm going to keep it and if I hadn't done that if I'd got disheartened at that early stage I might not be where I am today because I might have just said oh I might have ended up as a sort of cabbie or something saying you know property Governor, that doesn't work. So, so it's very important that you know to factor in, and interest rates is a very important thing to factor in, because uh, many people forget that for how many months is it now? Quite a long time, quite a few years. We've had um, a base rate that is at an historic all-time low for 400 years. It hasn't been at half a percent. Yeah, was it 80 months consistently? I'm trying to think. I think I heard it the other day. It was it's a long it, it, time. I, I think it is. I think it is. So so that is a heck of a long time. And and the other thing that happened then um, at the beginning of the 1990s. So first of all, we we lost that uh, tax relief, which made everybody lose interest. And then there was this thing with George Soros betting against the pound and the exchange rate mechanism, and the interest rates shot up. So so by contrast to a base rate of um, half a percent today. Uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 was normal, and I think for, for a couple of weeks it actually hit 16%, and I had to keep my uh, modest at that point property portfolio intact with interest rates like that, and that's when the day job came very, very handy because I was just doing every bit of overtime going and uh, to, to, keep, to keep everything afloat and, 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 and trying to cut costs on the, uh, on the property as well, on the outgoings. I'm really glad you shared this uh, this experience because what it allows us to do is highlight a couple of points because I think with your first story with that flat and you know having the cash offer and not taking it and maybe being tempted through uh, frustration or whatever to take a lower offer later when the one key principle was house prices go down as well as up and um, so indeed and so you have this uh, loss of asset value or loss of equity potential um, or loss of profit in your case um, that, that can eat into the situation but a lot of people then go don't worry about it I've got the cash flow to cover the position so you you hedge against the asset price devaluation with cash flow which is exactly what you did but then lo and behold indeed so you then had high interest rates which pushed up your your costs didn't they and probably ate into your cash flow position so I'm only saying it really just to highlight absolutely. That, I, I yeah go on when I started out, uh, when, when I started out, I was actually uh, for a short time I was negatively geared. Now that, that is something that normally only happens. It's, it, it's quite normal um, in Australia and New Zealand. It's par for the course that if you've got a property with tenants in, it's going to cost you a hundred dollars a month or something because people regard it as a pension. But here, everybody panics big time uh, when 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 that happens. So so yes, for a while I was uh, subsidising my tenants nice. for a short while. Yes. Yeah, because the um, look, we talked about the uh, property cycle uh, and, he and recessions actually, funnily enough, just last week. And what happened in, in around about that time is whilst interest rates went up, inflation and in particular rents went up as well, perhaps on, with a lag, but um, they went up. So it allow you to some extent to play a little bit of catch up. So um, it's a slight. Yes, there was, but it, 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 
Go ahead. There was, as you say, a lag. And, and so, as I say, it was just for a short time. But for a short time, I was um, re really questioning as to whether property was really for me and whether I'd really done the right thing. Yeah. So I guess your takeaway was, if I just paraphrase, um, you know, try and develop the portfolio, which is adding assets, um, presumably cash flowing assets. Uh, you, you did talk about yes. negative gearing, but um, I presume you'd recommend cash flowing assets. And I would. OK. And then um, but try and sustain the your, your main source of income, whether that's your your job, which is probably most people or, or maybe if you're self-employed or something like that. You know where where your sort of yes. bread and butter comes in. Yeah, okay. And then you know, yes. be, and, and, and at that point, sorry, at that point, um, uh, I didn't have any money as such to to, to invest in it. So what I did, uh, I kind of you know, early on, I, I I made a lot of the right decisions. I had this some um, two bedroom flat in London. I built myself a stud partition. I made it into a a, a three bedroom flat, and that in, that improved my cash flow, um, and, uh, and and that's what saved me at the end of the day. There's another strategy that you've just shared as well, isn't it? So <laughs> you, you, well, <laughs> you definitely you were doing all of these things before they were invented, or maybe you're the one who invented them, David. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> it's fascinating. But um, so I just going to the principle of uh, a portfolio and a cycle of a portfolio. I guess if we talk about you know, so you've got startup and you've got exit, and you've got a couple of steps in between. Um, what That's are the key? What are the key steps that you see and what uh, what can people do to prepare themselves as they go through looking at portfolio development? Right. I think you've got to start with a plan, haven't you, really? So so, so you can't um, sort, of, sort of muddle through it as I did. If, if I had had a plan uh, when I started out instead of sort of learning it all as I went along and, and, and making it up, no doubt I would be sort of further down the line uh, than I am today. And um, but, but I think nowadays uh, we, we can benefit from the fact that there are a lot of people who, who, who've kind of been there and done that. So uh, when, when people come along to me uh, for mentoring, and we, we always start, by I ask them, um, where are you at the moment? Uh, how do you? What's your attitude to risk? Where would you like to be in five years' time? In ten years' time? And then we try and work out a way to get there. And I think that's everybody's journey. It's, it's, it's personal to you. Take on board all the pertinent facts that. Uh, such as the way that the property market is cyclical and, and so, so you're not going to be surprised when these things inevitably happen and you know sort of what signs to look for. But then say, how can I, um, how can I turn what I know, how can I use this knowledge to my advantage to fuel growth? And, and a, a simple example of that would be um, to wait until the property market tanks having built up some money and then uh, spend that money buying properties when nobody else has any money, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, what um, about? So, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted. Sorry, no, no. Do continue. No, I was going to say. And what about? So, once you've made the plan and you've made a start, um, you know, how how do things unfold or develop? And are the different characteristics, for example, um, access to cash and borrowing and these sorts of things? Yes, uh, these are things that you've got to manage very, very carefully. It does depend on your attitude to risk, and it does depend on the, the speed at which you want to grow. Um, I tend to grow quite modestly. I'm, I'm, I'm not in any sort of rush to do things. Um, one, th that's another strategy that, that, that we could talk about, uh, which is some um, uh, pound cost averaging, mm -hmm. uh, and this is often seen um, in the world of um, equities, but it 
it can be seen in, in, in building a portfolio as well so that, for example, if I were to buy a house a year, then it wouldn't matter too much if there's the, the, the sort of cyclical movement but because at the end of 10 or 15 years, I would have ended up uh, with 15 properties which I had acquired at the average price, not too expensive, not too cheap. By riding these cycles a bit and by being aware of what's going on around you, you can, you can achieve better value. But um, it's, it's hard unless you do something really foolish to, to, to lose a lot of money in property. But the really foolish thing would be to borrow too much too quickly. Mm. Yeah, wise words. And, and we talked a little bit, didn't we, about um, the, the portfolio development or the portfolio cycle, which I'm, I'm, you know, this is what all about, can vary depending on the individual and, uh, and, and where they are in life. And I was very interested in what you had to, what your thoughts were there. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Um, yes, because there, isn't there doesn't necessarily have to be an exit strategy. There, there might be a sort of succession strategy of passing the portfolio on to your heirs. But um, to take uh, my mentor as an example, um, he, he was a, uh, a penniless refugee who didn't speak any English. Uh, and he arrived uh, with his mother aged about six or seven or eight, I think. Um, and um, so, so he, he went through the sort of educational system, became an estate agent, uh, very rapidly found that he's very good at it, started his own agency, ended up at about 35, potentially uh, financially independent with about, I think he had, he had about 15 uh, cash flowing units, said to his wife, do, do you mind if we take this a bit further? She said, no, sure, you seem to know what you're doing. So he pledged his entire portfolio as security for his first residential development uh, and, and worked very hard. He was working the phones to find the tenants. He had um, the money was coming in tranches from, from, from the banks uh, and he ended up a property billionaire and what right into his 90s, he was still doing a lot of it hands-on himself because that was kind of his life. It, it got his energy going. Some people might decide to sort of um, downsize a bit or to run it down, but, um, but you know, others, and I, I, I think I'm someone who will stay in the saddle right till the bitter end. Yeah, and, and you know, is, you know when you, you talked about people you engage with, um, you, you, is there a difference potentially between someone, let's say, in their 20s to someone in, say, their 50s, potentially? Oh, very much so. In the same way that um, if you're uh, in some kind of employment, early on in the job, you're, you're the guy running around, fetching the coffee and doing all the sort of legwork. But as, as, as you later on in life, you sort of take it easy and you take a sort of nominal role like head of pencil sharpness or something and somebody else is running around. Um, so in, in property, what that might mean, for example, is that in your 20s and 30s, you have quite a, a, a high level of gearing, although... Uh, perhaps not so high now in the light of the summer budget as, as, as I would have advised a, a year or two ago. But then when you get to, say, your mid-50s or something, or when you get to your mid-40s, you might start to gear down a bit in the same way that people prepare for retirement so that you have a largely unencumbered portfolio uh, to retire on with, with, with a steady, um, I won't say passive income because it, it isn't, it's a, it's a misconception, but a, a steady sort of low, low, low-ish maintenance income coming in for the rest of your days. Yeah, so it was something about, you talked about attitude to risk, um, but it's also appetite for risk, isn't there? Because I guess if you're single in your 20s, say, um, you know, you don't have maybe a partner, you don't have children to worry about, that can, that can have an influence on your uh, appetite for risk as well as maybe your attitude to risk. Whereas that could be quite yes, different as you, as you get to 40, you know, 30, 40, 50, depending on your, and what happens in your life, obviously. <laughs> 
that's a that's a very very good point, uh, Richard. And we, we we spent most of um, the, the the session uh, talking about um, my attitude to risk and my portfolio growth and, and and my strategy. Could I sort of interject for a moment and could could I ask about yours? Yeah, well, uh, in terms of how things developed and my my own attitude. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I started a little bit a little bit like you, insofar as it was accidental. Um, in the mid nineties, I I had a home, and uh, but I had a promotion at work which was several hundred miles away. And so, you know, instead of selling, we decided to rent the place out. And it was, you know, pure, pure accidental landlord status. So that was my, my first investment. Um, as I say, pretty much an accident. Didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Fairly little in the way of regulation, et cetera. And I appointed a letting agent. I managed to get a tenant in who told me they were going to stay for a long time. And, um, you know, within, within a few months, I'd had a major repair issue, which wiped out a whole year's profit. And uh, and then after six months of this long term tenancy, the tenants served notice. I thought, blimey, this is a bit difficult. Oh my. <laughs> so I, I sold I sold that property. And that was that's you know, if ever I want to beat myself up, I just look at the value of that property today. So um, that was a big lesson for me in retrospect. At the time, I made a few quid. I uh, can't really tell you what I did with it, but uh, I didn't reinvest it into property for a while. So that was that was my sort of start. But in earnest, when I got going properly, it wasn't that long ago. It was it was only about uh, six, eight years ago. And I didn't have a lot of money. I knew I needed I had a plan to your point, but I didn't have a lot of money. And so uh, my strategy became one of recycling my cash, making my money work hard for me. And so it was all value adding strategies, you know, buy, buy, do up, refinance or sell on was predominantly what I did. So um, I had a family at that stage, so I couldn't take too many risks to, to, to your point mm -hmm. about attitude, attitude to risk and maybe appetite for risk. I've always been something of a risk taker, but uh, I had responsibilities as well. So that's another reason why I didn't just sort of throw everything all caution to the wind. But it was very much on the sideline developing my portfolio, again, like you, before I was in a position to say, well, this could sustain me if I wanted it to. But I do believe in this idea of having multiple income sources. So property rental income is just one. And so I have other streams of income. So I want to hedge a little bit with, with having multiple streams because you don't know what can happen. So, you know, here, here I am. I'm in the late 40s and, you know, I have a portfolio, you know, a reasonable size portfolio. It can sustain me. Um, I, I picked up a phrase actually from someone who I worked with um, who used the term low, uh, what is it? No, it's employment optional. There we go. So, I mean, employment optional, I have a flexible lifestyle. I'm, I travel a bit and uh, I'm able to run my portfolio from anywhere in the world. So, that's just a little bit about me. But I've given you a few clues to what you're saying about stages in life and um, attitude to risk and uh, access to funding and these sorts of things that we've been talking about. Yes. So, although you know our, our specific portfolios, our specific journeys have have come kind of been different. There's a, there's a sort of broad takeaway uh, here in 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 that what property ca can do for everybody and and what is attainable. Yeah, and and thanks for asking me the question. I really appreciate that. It, it allows us, as you say, to illuminate a couple of different approaches. But I get I guess at this stage, what I'm you know drawing a bit of a close. I, I, there's probably just a couple of questions I wanted to pose to you, David, and get your take. Is uh. Have you any specific sure. have you any specific tips for either new or aspiring investors or, or potentially someone who's just looking for a, a change of direction anything you would well, that's interesting to? because it, it, it th th there is no one size fits all that's the first thing I'd say so uh, a potential somebody who wants to start out in property might have uh, no money at all they might have fifty thousand they want to put in they might have 
200,000. So, so obviously there would be different advice in, in those circumstances. They might be somebody who's, who's very, very, very risk-averse and who, 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 who is some sort of plodding through their sort of career path in which they see uh, property as just a bit of a top-up. Or there might be someone who's, who's very dissatisfied with, with, with where they're at the moment, in which case I would say don't, uh, as a result of that dissatisfaction, do anything too, uh, too risky or too soon. So I'd say, you know, have a look at the landscape take a look around, see what other people are doing, talk to people, engage and, 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 and get their help because there are now, there are at least, aren't there, two million landlords. So the chances are the person sitting next to you on the train uh, tomorrow morning may well be a property investor. Strike up a conversation and uh, benefit from their experiences. Very good. I think, you know, it can be a lonely old trail, can't it? So, you know, tap, yes. in, tap into the experience and the wisdom of people around you. But um, I just uh, another phrase does come to mind is, uh, you know, free advice could also be the most costly you ever take. <laughs> oh, very, very much so. Before following anybody's advice at all, particularly the bloke down the pub, um, see where they're at and, and only um, surround yourself with the positive can-do people and only take advice uh, from them. The, the naysayers will just uh, drag you down to their level. Yeah. And I have to I have to steal a little bit. Uh, you know, I've been talking about property cycles generally, and I know you you know you have uh, some views on it. But any sort of quick quick insight as to where you think we are generally and what we can expect over coming years? I'm I'm, I'm taking a liberty here in asking you this question because it's a little bit off uh, off the topic, but it's in the general theme. Yes. Uh, well Oh, absolutely. As you know, may know, I've got a whole one hour's talk where I talk about property cycles. Unfortunately, that's got more than 150 slides, and I'm a chap with a terrible memory, and the slides are like my sort of reminders. So as the slide flashes up, I go, oh, yeah, the world's tallest building, whatever. But, you know, have a look around, see how many people, uh, see how many full page adverts there are in, in one of these sort of London magazines like Metro for property courses, instant ones, uh, free ones for three hours or something, from people you've never heard of. Uh, look around. I was, I was up in the um, Financial Times uh, building um, with the editor Andrew Hill a, a week or two back, and we were, we, were, we were counting on the skyline the number of tower cranes that we could see. That's another sort of indicator. So, so see if you feel, for example, that the market's getting a bit overheated, and then make your plans accordingly. And do you feel it's getting a little bit overheated at the moment? Uh, I think that's for the listener to decide, don't you? <laughs> okay. You're not getting off that fence. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I'm intrigued, and, and the listeners might be as well. You talked about, in fact, a talk with a hundred odd slides uh, on cycles, and, and um, you know it's quite clear that you've got lots of experience, both in terms of time, but also depth, really, in terms of what you've covered. Is uh, you know, can we point people how to maybe get in touch if they wanted to? And um, where's the best way, place to get hold of you? Um, yes, I suppose um, one place they can find me, which is quite an obvious sort of place, is on uh, uh, facebook.com forward slash david.clouter, because I, I seem to be on there far more than I should. <laughs> I've seen you very active in the property community, David, so <laughs> I'm sure people can find you. So what that, that's great. What I'll do is I'll drop the links in the show notes as well. So if anybody wants to look you up uh, and you couldn't remember that, no worries. I'll just put the links in the show notes for today's show. But I think you know. In terms of uh, today, I really appreciate your your insights and your wisdom. It's always good to have have you have you and someone with your experience on the show, David. So thank you once again for joining. And uh, probably just in parting, is there anything I should have asked you that I I haven't, or did we cover? No, I think we've uh, covered it uh, very comprehensively, uh, Richard. And and thank you very much for having me on. Much appreciated. You're more than welcome, and I hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks, David.
So I really do hope the points came over clearly there. David has been investing in property since 1982 and has seen, if not even pioneered, many of the different property strategies, which we, we know today in, under different names and guises, in the 30 plus years that he has been investing. Now he talks about how our property portfolio will evolve and develop over time, how it will or, or could change with our life circumstances and indeed our risk appetite, and not to mention our access to funding. Now he made the point that we should have a plan and that this should be personal to us and our very own situation. And finally he was also cautioning us against the downsides and against rushing too quickly into the quit your job mentality without having a rock solid foundation underneath us. Now I wanted to introduce the idea of portfolio cycles in this episode by sharing some of the wisdom of somebody that has been operating for, for several years you know, 30 odd years actually. So, you know, he's a good person to listen to. And I think David's perfect for, you know, ex you know, sharing his wisdom over that period of time. And we'll return to the topic in a little more detail next time around. However, one thing that David did mention to me uh, after the interview itself, and I hope he, he doesn't mind me sharing this, was his desire for people to have both all of the information possible, but equally to think and decide for themselves. And he's therefore something, I guess, in my words, my description of an anti-guru, you could say. And despite David's clear modesty in, in not really wishing to present himself as some sort of know-it-all or guru, guru rather, I, I can assure you that he knows his stuff uh, intellectually, instinctively and also practically. And that makes him well worth listening to, in my opinion. So thanks once again, David, if you are listening. I really appreciate your inputs today. Now, he he really wasn't joking when he said he, sp he spends a lot of time on Facebook. And I don't think he means playing, you know, the uh, the games, etc. that you find on, on Facebook. He's very active in the property communities. I'm sure you'll you'll see his name. It's, uh, it's not the most common name, so you'll probably see it stand out. So do as he suggested and, and look to connect with him on Facebook. And as he mentioned, his Facebook uh, account is uh, facebook.com slash david.clouter. And he spells his name C-L-O-U-T-E-R. I guess you can spell David, so that's why I didn't spell that. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to Your Voice then. Up next is Your Voice. It's all about you and your property world. Okay, so back to Your Voice then. And we have another five-star review this week. And this time it comes from Anch who says, invaluable free resource, and I think that's a, a point he wishes to emphasise, <laughs> yet another great resource from The Property Voice. What with the blog and the investor toolkit, you have access to all the knowledge you need to start or improve your property journey within property investing. I have found the podcast today to be very informative and interesting. I'm not a big fan of Kaza, oh, not another one, <laughs> but I think I'm in the minority there. The podcast is definitely worth a listen for anyone looking to start out in property. There are so many people out there trying to sell this information to you. Why not get it for free from the Property Voice? Well, thank you very much, Anch, and uh, for the kind words and obviously the call-outs to some of the other resources that um, that we share. So, much appreciate that. Not really feeling a lot of love for Kaza, are we? A couple of weeks running. I think she might be on an extended sabbatical <laughs> after all of this. 
So Kaza bashing aside, we really do appreciate the reviews that you send in to us though. So please take a moment, if you would, and leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help spread the word. And of course, I can get to call out your name on this segment of the show as well. But right now, it's the shout out. And now, where you can go for more great resources with the shout out. In today's shout out, I wanted to share a piece of technology which might be familiar to you already, but I almost take for granted, but really I should not. It's called WhatsApp, you know, and um, it's, you probably all know it as a very cool and and indeed free SMS or text uh, service, which is great in itself. However, in addition to text, we can also send voice messages or voice memos. We can send images and videos as well. Again, all free of charge. Of course, this is outside of any network data charges, that is. So it's especially effective when you're using Wi-Fi, but, uh, or if you've got influ- inclusive data in your, in your mobile phone plan. And yet it recently got even better. And we can now use WhatsApp to make and receive telephone calls as well. Yes, telephone calls. And this makes it a real crossover between Viber and Skype, I think. And it really comes into its own if you've got a limited number of texts or minutes in your mobile call plan. And especially, as I mentioned, when you're using Wi-Fi. And it's great when you're traveling overseas uh, because you can have low-cost international telephone calls, in fact, now. Um, Again, once you're using Wi-Fi. So on a practical level, I've been using WhatsApp to connect with tenants, with agents, contractors and other service providers by message and call, either individually or indeed in groups, because you can have group chat as well. And I've sent uh, and received video messages, images of properties to consider buying, as well as on-site repairs and maintenance to authorise and uh, and close off works. It even tells you if a message has been delivered and read, uh, which is pretty useful to confirm whether your message is getting through or not. What's up with WhatsApp then? Not much really, I'd say. I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> so if you haven't got it already, or indeed if you haven't explored all of the uh, features of WhatsApp, then I would suggest you do. And uh, nothing in it for me, just a big shout out for a good piece of technology. But there we have it, another week of property content to feed our hunger of knowledge in property. By all means, feel free to drop me an email personally, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. And as always, the show notes will be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. But thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.